Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Matt Burson. We're at Portland Wine Company. Uh, it's February 8th, 2019. Uh, and Matt, we're going to start by asking, uh, why wine? Um, why wine? It's, it's the only thing I can imagine doing. Um, um, I, I mean, I guess it's about how I got into wine. I mean, it was... I graduated from college. I graduated from UC Berkeley with a liberal arts degree. Um, and um, while trying to become a freelance uh, journalist, took a job as a waiter. And turned out I was much better at selling, selling bottles of wine tableside than I was at pitching stories to independent weeklies in San Francisco. Um, and so I sort of just fell into the food and wine scene in San Francisco in the 90s, which was... San Francisco was the top um, food city at that time. It had just surpassed New York, we were told. Um, and it was a great opportunity to learn about food and, and beverage. Um, and as a waiter, you get to eat and drink way past your pay grade. <laughs> and so then I started sitting in with the wine buyer um, when sales reps would come and, and this and that. And um, so I was, pursuing a, I was pursuing a restaurant career, uh, uh, basically. Um, and I was just really taken by it, and yeah, so started learning all I could, going up to Napa and going to Sonoma. Um, got a got a trip to Scotland and went whiskey touring, uh, you know this and that. So, but I grew up. I grew up. Part of my childhood was in London, and we traveled around Europe a lot in a camper bus. And um, so, being in Europe, uh, you know, I mean, wine was much more accepted at the dinner table on a regular basis in Europe and London than I think it was in the States. Um, so I was exposed to it then. Not that I was like drinking Bordeaux every night with my mac and cheese or anything, but you know. Um, but yeah. So was there a time when it shifted from future in restaurants to future in wine? Was, was, there, like a, was there a trigger? Absolutely. So I, um, I moved to Portland in 2000. Um, uh, followed a girl up here, she's still around somewhere, um, and started, took over managing a restaurant in downtown Portland, and took over a well-established wine list there, which also, which a, a lot of focus on local wines on it, also Italian wines, um, and um, I sort of just fell right into it. Uh, that, that year, I became, I was a maitre d' at the IPNC, mm -hmm. I was like grandfathered into it, they already had a slot for me, um, and I was just like in the, in the thick of it, you know? Um, but so two things happened. One, I started tasting through Oregon wines. The only I'd only had sort of big label Oregon wines. Um, I remember in San Francisco tasting Benton Lane, Pinot Noir, um, and maybe a couple other producers. Um, but tasting all these small, uh, smaller local producers um, was a real eye opener. Um, um, particularly the Rieslings I tasted, which we can get back to mm -hmm. uh, later. Um, but it, and additionally. 
like in San Francisco when I was buying wine, you'd get guys with suits coming in, occasionally somebody from the winery, but never someone who, was, who produced the wine. Um, whereas in Portland, winemakers were coming in. You know, I mean, I literally, I mean, I have people coming in with vineyard mud on their boots, and quite literally, one producer, who I won't say who it is, and I think he didn't even, wasn't even aware of it, he came in, and he's like, you know, I just bottled this wine, and he literally had grape leaves in his beard. <laughs> you guys can guess who it was, because you've done a lot of interviews, and he was totally oblivious to it. So I was having people who became my mentors, people like, um, uh, people from uh, like Patty Green and people like Jimmy Brooks coming in and saying, I just bottled this. So Jimmy in particular um, would come in and we were pouring some of his wine by the glass so he had regular deliveries. And I was like, well, why don't you deliver on the weekends, like during brunch, and I can buy you breakfast. Pascal would be playing on the stairs. And I'd sit and just pick his brain about what he was doing and why he was doing it and about vineyard practices, about all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I got sort of, uh, so that in that way I had a more direct connection with the winemakers than I ever had. Mm -hmm. And I liked them, you know. And in the same time, a waitress who was working for me became the first full-time employee at, uh, at Patty Green's. Mm -hmm. um, and she needed some extra hands uh, to pour at an open house. And I went and poured um, there and hit it off with Patty, who everybody who ever met her hit it off with Patty. Um, and she said, her or Jim said, well, wh why don't you come back next week and help clean some barrels? And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, you know, like you don't seem that happy putting on a suit and babysitting waiters. Like, why don't you come back? <laughs> and I was like, great. And so I talked to Jim before I came and I said, what do I need? He said, wear clothes you don't care about and buy a pair of Blundstones. And um, so I showed up and it's, I got, that was it, you know, so that was 2003. Yeah, and so I worked 2003 Harvest for Patty, doing the Pinot, and then when the Pinot was all in, um, Jimmy had called and he said, why, we got the Riesling coming in, it's the last grape to harvest, why don't you come and help us process the Riesling? Mm -hmm. um, so I got to work with both of them in 2003. Yeah. So you mentioned Patty and Jimmy, obviously. Yeah. I assume uh, you, you met a lot of winemakers quickly, I imagine, yeah. and, and there were other people who I assume influenced you kind of making this decision to go into wine. Uh, so who are some of the people you remember from like early on in your days that kind of influenced so, you? So, yeah, I mean, there was sort of, I mean, at that time, it was like the, uh, it was the three Jimmies, um, uh, or the three Js, right? So it was Jay from Jay Christopher, Jay mm -hmm. Summers, mm -hmm. uh, and Jimmy Brooks, and, um, Jim Prosser. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, do, I met Jim Prosser early on, but didn't work for him, but I ended up working um, for Jimmy doing Harvest. I worked for Jay. He was, he was the vineyard manager of uh, Pavillon Vineyard mm -hmm. when he was, he was making the Holleran wines and making his wines at Holleran, and Bill Holleran owns that vineyard. It's a 1969, it's right across from the original Dr. Bauer Vineyard on Warden Hill Road. Um, and um, it was planted to there's a little bit of Chard, Gris, Riesling, and Pinot. There's a nine-acre vineyard, and we worked, I worked, I was the vineyard crew. It was three of us every day out there, um, which is great hands-on. And I would pick up gigs. Um, the the Carl Mike Maker Studio was just starting up, mm -hmm. and I had sort of fallen with Andrew Rich. Mm -hmm. um, so if there was bottling happening in the studio, if Andrew needed something, I'd run in and just try to jump in on anything I could. Mm -hmm. um, and just trying to get as much experience 
under my belt, doing as much as I could, whether it's vineyard, bottling, cellar, sure. anything, sure. you know? Sure. Um, so those, so yeah, um, and then, uh, and then I guess that whole crew that was hanging around um, at the studio, uh, you know, I bumped into, what's that girl? Um, I bumped into Kelly Fox around that time. Um, uh, she was great fun on the bottling line. Um, yeah. What was it about the, the process? Was there a favorite part of it? Was it in the vineyard? Was it in the winery? Was there a favorite part of the process for you? What, what, what pulled you in? Um, I, guess I guess I sort of liked the there's a certain solitude to it when you're like heads down working on a project like cleaning a tank you're alone in a tank getting that clean right but then there's also the camaraderie and the society of it mm -hmm. where when you're done cleaning the tank you sit and have a glass of wine or or get your heads together and figure out what to do next um, and i really liked that and i also was taken pretty early on with the cycle of winemaking. So I worked in restaurants. Restaurants are, it's like breakfast, lunch, dinner, breakfast, lunch, dinner, Valentine's Day, breakfast, <laughs> lunch, dinner, breakfast, lunch, dinner, Mother's Day, you know I mean? Like, and it's just this really tight circle, you know, and even within service, it's like set the table, seat it, serve, clear, set the tables, you know, it's like a very, um, uh, it's a quick uh, kind of uh, turnaround. Mm -hmm. um, and winemaking um, is quite the opposite. I mean, there's certainly some hectic times, but it's such a bigger cycle. You know, there's harvest, which is of course the most intense, intense time when you're mostly in touch with like, with nature really, because you're seeing it coming in on the sorting tables, you know? And then there's winter like we're in right now, which is sort of everyone's, it's sort of a regenerative time. You know, all the energies in the roots of the plants and same as us, like I'm sitting at home making plans for the next year and sort of reviewing the last year and what went well and making plans for the future of my business. Um, and then in spring, there's sort of the rebirth, the, the cellar warms up, malolactic fermentation is starting, so there's a little bit of actually physical rebirth. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you were bottling and, and, and birthing the new wines. And then the summer is such a social time, right? Summer is like when you're out in the, out selling, mm -hmm. doing farm dinners, whatever you are, and being super so social. And then it's this full uh, cycle. Um, and I, I really like that, because it, it feeds all the sides of of my needs, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, that's Jess Pierce. She sells wine for Walter Scott and makes Pierce Riesling. Ooh. She's kick-ass. She'll be next on the video in a few years, maybe. <laughs> um, so I think that's um, what really appealed to me. I mean, I don't. Th I think it took a few years of seeing the process. Mm -hmm. Um, before I before I realized it, you know, so I think with any um, task or career or whatever, it, it takes a while before you see the full picture of it. So it took me it took me a while. In the meantime, when I realized, I sort of looked up from the work I was doing and said, "Well, I'm not doing anything else but this. How do I get ahead, or how do I make myself invaluable mm -hmm. to my community and and, and to the wine?" Um, the pursuit of making great wine in Oregon. And I realized that one way to do was to go and get as, an education as quickly as possible. Um, I was 30 at the time and I did not want to go back to school. Um, 
but I'd already been working for all these great people. You know, also working for Patty. I mean, Patty's sandwich between um, Brickhouse and um, Beaufrere, and they'd, we'd all go to parties at each other's houses and stuff, so I was rubbing shoulders with these people too and going, this is great. And like, how do I do that? I said, well, go work for more people as, quick, as soon as possible. Um, and so that's when I sort of looked toward the Southern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. um, and as I'm sure you've heard in all your interviews, there's a, there's a, a pretty well-trod path of people uh, going and doing internships um, in other wine-growing regions. And harvest being the most intense time and the time when most of the decisions are made. Excuse me. Um, in terms of what style of wine you're going to make, whether it's the picking or the fermentation, that I decided I needed to get as many harvests under my belt as soon as possible. Um, so I went, um, I went to New Zealand um, in mm -mm, 2004, I think it was, or 2005. And then the next year I did a Northern Hemisphere. I went to Napa and worked for um, Helen Turley, um, making Cab and Merlot, um, which was a very different thing. Um, and I met Brian Marcy from Big Table Farm there. He was one of the associates at uh, Turley and Associates. Um, and then I went that same year and worked for, for Ernie Lohsen um, in Germany, um, making amazing Rieslings and getting to know the vineyards out there and all the other producers. Um, and then, then I'd come back and work in Oregon, and then I went down to Argentina. Um, I think that's it. I worked a bunch of places, and it was great because I just because everybody does some things the same but differently, mm -hmm. you know. And and sometimes they do it just because that's how they've always done it, and sometimes they do it because they've got a really good, well thought out reason for it. And I was able to bring all that information back um, and share it with winemakers here, the people I was working for. Sure. Um, at that point, I was working as assistant winemaker for um, Tad Seestad at Ransom. Um, and um, yeah, we would experiment with different things, and he let me do it, and he's the guy who suckered me into making my first Pinot Noir. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come back to that in just a second, yeah. but I'm curious if you can, since you had all those very rapid experiences at all these different wine-growing regions, kind of, how do they compare? You said, you said people do things the same but different. So how do the different regions compare to Oregon? Well, um, New Zealand is kind of a, it's sort of a parallel of Oregon. Um, it is, it is even, an even younger wine industry, a Pinot Noir growing industry than here. Um, and so there was a lot of, of, we were able to share because we were sort of in the same moment, maybe just a little bit ahead of them in terms of um, how to deal with uh, uh, viticulture problems and things like that. Um, it's a cool growing region, um, highly aromatic, highly acidic wines, um, you know. Um, so that was great, but it's also a very, it's a pretty modern uh, sort of culture. Mm -hmm. um, so while, while I think that we look toward California, which is also somewhat modern, but also look towards Europe as our model, while I think they probably hold the European wines in high stead, they were more open to um, modern technology. And I think part of that is quite a few people who were making wine in New Zealand um, graduated from, in Australia from Adelaide, which is the big viticulture, school, viticulture and enology school. And so they were sort of taught more cutting edge uh, science and technology and processing techniques. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, I mean, a lot of those, I think, play more towards very large-scale large production, but still they were bringing those ideas. So I worked for Larry McKenna, who's an Aussie who'd lived in New Zealand forever. He was the first winemaker at Martinborough Vineyards, um, which was the sort of one of the top sort of nationally recognized Pinot Noirs from New Zealand. But he graduated from school, you know, in, in Australia, and sort of, and a lot of people who came down to work for him did as well. Um, New Zealand also has its own uh, wine school in Christchurch or Canterbury. I forget which. Um, but so there was, there were, whereas in Oregon, we didn't have that sort of standardization of information. Um, but one of the main things was, you know, I was having such a great time making wine in Oregon. I'm like, I'm just partying with my friends and we're making something. So throwing myself into, I was like, I'm going to go make wine with strangers and see if I really want to do it. Well, by the end of the thing, you're just partying with your friends in a different country because <laughs> you've made new friends in a different country. Um, and you're just trying to make the best, uh, the best possible wine. I mean, also, you know, to some degree, like going to make wine in Napa, I kind of wanted to see... Uh, what the secret was, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I think you can learn as much from a, a place about what you don't want to incorporate in your winemaking mm -hmm. as what you do. So also working with other varietals, I mean, working with thick-skinned Bordeaux varietals is very different than the grapes that we're working with here. Um, but it was good knowledge to have, and if I encounter those grapes down the road, or if I have a problem I can pull on my, my experience with those with those grapes and maybe um, and do that. Um, but Napa, I mean, just the cost of entry in Napa is so much, and the, so the so the fear of failure is is so high. Mm -hmm. There's a whole different set of, of standards, and um, because there's so much at risk, sure. um, which isn't that pleasant of a way to make wine, like. You can't really experiment or just try something new mm -hmm. when you're paying ten thousand bucks a ton for wine, mm -hmm. you sure. know. And on top of what you're paying your winemaker, your consultant, your vineyard manager, and all that. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, in Argentina, it was mostly ended up just being about the barbecue and the tango. <laughs> but uh, but it was great. I met some great people. Um, Was there a, we always talk about Oregon being such a collaborative and, and welcoming wine industry, and you talk about the people you're making friends with almost from the start. Was it similar when you went else, elsewhere, when you're trying to go to New Zealand to work a harvest without knowing anybody there? Was it just, hey, yeah, sure, you come on and work for us, or was there more to it than that? No, it was pretty much, I mean, I put, a, I put together a CV with my relevant experience, which was pretty light, you know, but mostly I just would say, hey, I know Patty Green, she says I'm okay. And they're like, oh, well, we know Patty, you know, and come on over. Okay. Um, at least that was what it was like in New Zealand. And Larry, um, Larry McKenna, had actually been at IPNC before and, and hung out um, with a bunch of Oregon winemakers. So he sort of knew what the deal was. Um, um, so he was way open to it. For other, for other gigs, it took a little bit more um, convincing, you know. I mean, working for Ernie... Um, Ernie who had, was just starting Lowson Brothers USA, which is his um, his USA distribution arm, um, and Kirk Willie um, was heading that up, and he he'd been working for many years writing a report called the Riesling Report, I think it was, because he was just a Riesling head, and he brought Ernie by um, Pavillon Vineyard, I think it was, 
Is that how it went down? I think he brought Ernie by there, um, and we chatted. I chatted with him, and Jay chatted with him, and he mentioned that, he mentioned during that that he was looking to bring people over, and and the opportunity came up, and Jay jumped at it, and he went and worked for him, and now we have an Ernie Lowson Pinot Noir project in Oregon, um, and then I went the next year. Um, and kept that up. So I'd met, I'd met him, and he'd also been um, to IPNC. Mm-hmm. Um, and his his nephew came and worked with us at Pavillon Vineyard for a while. I think his name was Daniel. Um, so yeah, different ways. But it was, but once there, I mean, New Zealand was definitely such. A, it was a small industry at the time, and being down, I was down south working in vineyards for a while, um, uh, down in central Otago. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone just meet in Queenstown or in Dunedin um, after work, you know, for a pint and um, and chat. And then Martinborough is even even tighter of a uh, of a of a little wine community. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I knew everybody pretty quickly, and they just make fun of my accent. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that it's Tad's fault that you started making wine. So tell yeah. us a little bit how you how you came to the idea of uh, of being a winemaker. So, well, back to my days as a wine buyer when I took over the wine list um, at Oritalia was the name of the restaurant, short-lived dealio, but um, there were a, a lot of Oregon wines on the list that Tyson Pierce, who had preceded me, and she's now the buyer at um, Herb Farm, or was for a very long time after. Um, uh, so I, she, she put that list together and I just started tasting through them. Excuse me. Um, and we'd had, I think we had Brooks Janice on by the glass, and we definitely had Westry, uh, Pinot Gris on, um, and we had some um, Cuneo, you know, Canna's Feast, um, Bordeaux blend on, and some things. I'll gesticulate more this to keep exactly, it going. Exactly. Um, so I started pulling some of the bottles out of the, out of the, um, cellar at the restaurant and tasting them and you know pouring them for the waiters and everything and I was particularly taken by the Rieslings from Brooks and from uh, Ransom Mm -hmm. and these must have been 2000s I'm thinking Um, but I'd had Riesling before I'd had I mean I'd been buying wine in California I'd had domestic Rieslings from California which I'm sorry were not to my liking I mean just I don't think it's the right climate um, and, and then I'd had some European Rieslings, you know, Alsatian and um, German Rieslings. But I was really, um, I was really blown away by the wines. I mean, they, they were dry as fuck. Um, they, which obviously was something I wasn't, hadn't been exposed to as much. It was a little more modern thinking in that way. Um, but the, the, so the acid was very prominent, the minerality, but also the fruit profile I'd never had. And it was just so dynamic. Mm-hmm. Like they really like fireworks in your mouth kind of wines. Um, not particularly subtle, um, but you know, I was a young man. I wasn't looking for th- something subtle. I was looking for something like something exciting, something to pair. I was working in a restaurant that served spicy Asian-inspired food, so that worked pretty well too. Um, but also just like, they were just exciting wines. Um, so I started, I wanted to meet those guys, mm-hmm. you know? And so I met Jimmy pretty quickly because he was coming in and selling us wine. It took a while before I met Tad. It was actually at an IPNC, I think. 
and it was after a dinner there, and he was walking around with a bottle of his grappa. His, it was probably Gewürztraminer grappa, and just like asking people if they want to taste his grappa, which is a very dangerous thing to do after a giant meal with plenty of wine. Um, but I met him there, and then through, you know, he was one of Jimmy's best friends, so mm -hmm. at parties at Jimmy's and stuff. Um, so he offered me a position um, after our friend Jean-Jacques had moved, who had been filling the position, moved to Seattle. Um, actually, he didn't move to Seattle, sorry. He took a job at a distributor. Um, and, and yeah, so I was working for Tad for about a year. And he had asked me early on like what my goals were, what I wanted to do. And I said, well, you know, maybe eventually I'd like to make, try my hand at making a little bit of wine. And I think it was, so it was 2006, and he said, he said, hey, Matt, um, why don't, why don't you try your hand at making a little bit of Pinot Noir this year? He said, I'll sell you a ton of fruit, and I'll give you the barrels to put it in. I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm not ready for that. I don't think so. And I went home and slept, you know, and malt was in my mind. I was chewing it over and I slept on it. And I came back the next day or two days later. I said, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this. I said, I'll do that if you also sell me some Riesling. Because I always knew that I, I, I'd make Pinot Noir, but I always knew that I wanted to try my hand at, at um, making Riesling as good as I'd had from those guys. So he rolled his eyes at me and said, fine. Um, and so that was 2006, and I brought in, it was like a ton or a little less than a ton of Momtazi fruit, and then some Riesling from Shehala Mountain Vineyard. Um, 2006 was a terrible year f to bring in Pinot Noir. I mean, the fruit came in, and nothing against my Momtazi, but the fruit came in at like six o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night, and it was like 85 degrees. The stuff was fermenting in the bins. And I was down in the Pinot Ghetto, so they were delivering at the same time to maybe Irie, but definitely Westry and all around. And everyone was like calling to like, what is going on? Like, what, you know? And so it was, you know, you're not, you're not going to get a cold soak. It was big, overblown, over like super ripe year. So it was, um, it was upsetting, particularly when that's all the, it was my first time making Pinot and it was all the Pinot that I had. Um, but actually I went back and I had the wine like three years ago and it was really showing well like it had really come around i don't know why but <laughs> just it just had pinot is weird that way but yeah so that was it so i and looking back at it i mean you know tad's a great guy but i know that there he i think his reasons were really twofold he didn't want competition on the shelf with another pinot noir producer he wanted me a to show up to work more often because um, i was commuting from portland down to mcminnville and i think he he thought that if I had my own skin in the game in the cellar physically that I'd come down to check on him. And it was true for about six months. And also he want, just wanted someone else to share his misery. <laughs> you know, the agony and the worry um, that it is to be, uh, to be a winemaker in Oregon. Um, bless his heart. So when you were dealing with those, that first batch of fruit, uh, did you feel like you knew what you were doing at that point? Did you feel like, okay, well, this, is, this isn't ideal conditions, but I can still make good wine out of this? Or were you kind of freaking out? I was kind of freaking out. Um, I, I mean, I had made, I had seen a lot of fruit go across sorting tables at that point. Somebody told me, Marcus Goodfellow said, you know, I think that you have the most foreign experience of anyone in the Valley. That's not true any longer. It's, now it's a lot more typical. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was true then, but I had seen a lot of different fruit across a lot of sorting tables in a short period of time. Um, 
but I'd never seen fruit like that. Um, and so, and I didn't really have I didn't really have much in my in my bag of tricks mm -hmm. yet, you know. But I was making wine in a facility. We were processing the same the same fruits. So we were all working together to make best possible wine, and and I knew it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna totally suck, mm -hmm. you know. It's from a good site, and we're making it well. But um, I just I really wanted to make you know light bright. Um, Oregon, tip of, you know, quality, mm -hmm. like Oregon smelling and tasting wine, and I thought this was going to be a little bit richer than that. Um, but yeah, it was it, it was great, and and after that, at that point, I was like, oh well, I'm going to have to do this again, <laughs> you know, and, and again, um, until now when I'm totally unemployable, as I've been making wine for myself for so long. <laughs> So how did you progress from there after you, you, you made your first, you, made, you had done your first harvest, made your first vintage, then what happened? Yeah, there? so that was 2006, and then I think I made some, I made some more there in 2007. And then after that, um, uh, Big Chris, Chris Williams, um, was moving the Brooks production out of Custom Crush into the old um, prune drying, um, uh, prune drying facility up at the top of Eola Hills mm -hmm. Road, right? Um, uh, so Brooks was going to establish their first standalone winery, and so I went over there to help him set it up. Mm -hmm. um, and I was up there with him uh, f for three years, so 2008, 9, and 10. And we filled that place to the rafters um, with Pinot and with Riesling. Um, and that's where we, we launched and we made the sweet pea wine there for the first time. Um, you know, play around a lot with native yeast and white wines. Um, yeah, and just had a grand, grand old time. Um, and then, but it was pretty hard to make my own wine there as well because it was a very small facility. And, um, um, and so like if I wanted to do so, I was welcome to do it. It was part of my deal um, with, with Chris and Janie. But just to get to my barrels would have take would take a day of digging out, right? And then the next day I could work on my wine, sure. which um, my wine wasn't making much money for me. But um, it, it, I wasn't making the best wine I could because of that. And so that's when Marcus Goodfellow called. He had just signed the lease at a place um, down in the Pinot Ghetto, and and I was the first call he made after he signed the lease. And I'd been following him. There were a few people sort of ahead of me in the game who had come out of the restaurant scene. Um, Marcus was one. He had been the bartender and buyer at the Heathman. Uh, John Groshaw, who had worked at Higgins forever and, and then worked at Brickhouse and had established his own, his own label. So these were people who I was sort of like chasing a little bit. Um, and we were uh, sort of helping each other out. Um, well, I'm sure there are more who I'm forgetting, but, but definitely those two. Um, yeah, and so that was in 2011. We did the first harvest there, um, and I, I think I doubled production then. So I'd been selling my wine. I mean, I came up with, I think I released my first wine in 2007. It was like 60-something cases. You know, but because of my connections in the restaurant scene, I knew I could at least sell a case to all the wine buyers I knew. At least out of pity, they'd buy it. <laughs> so that, but then the main question was whether I could sell a second case. You know, and soon enough I was able to, and it, so there was some pull through. Sure. Um, 
And then in terms of selling wine locally, I mean, you didn't ask about this, but it's, it's very important, like how, there's lots of people who want to grow grapes. There's lots of people who want to make wine. But a lot of people don't think through to the how I'm, I'm going to end up with this product. I'm going to have a warehouse full of wine. What, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to sell it? And I was pretty confident. I wasn't confident that I knew how to grow, grow grapes. I wasn't confident that I knew how to make wine. But I was confident that I knew how to sell um, wine because I had done it. Right? So I think that that gave me an advantage um, uh, right off the bat that even if the wine was mediocre, I could sell a case of it. Um, and also in Portland, I think a big, well one, Portland, the Portland food scene was starting to blow up, so there were lots of restaurants open and lots of people who wanted um, under the radar wines on their list. Mm -hmm. Secondly, New Seasons uh, market here was a, was a great asset for us because they had sort of in their mission statement that they wanted to support small producers, whether it's of cheese or wine or meat or whatever, and they made it easy to do so. Mm -hmm. So they approved my labels, and I could roll up and taste them, and I could roll up with a case of wine to their back uh, receiving dock, and they'd treat me well and let me put it up on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And so I can't even, I can't under-emphasize the advantage that that gave me, because you can sell a, a bottle or two a week at a restaurant, maybe a bit more if it's being poured by the glass, but groceries is where most people nowadays buy their wine. Um, so if you can keep a shelf stocked with six bottles all the time, it's gonna sure. roll out and people are gonna see the label, you're gonna go, that's a cute label, I'll give it a chance, right? Or that's the right price and a cute label, <laughs> and, um, which I had both, um, so yeah. Um, so you talked about uh, you talked about your label and your price. Uh, tell me about yeah. the the name and the label and how you came up with uh, your name. So yeah, I mean that's obviously a question that comes up because it's a it's a strange name um, uh, or ev evocative. I hope. Um, so I'd never. I mean, I got into it. I was like, I'm going to make a couple barrels of Pinot. I'm going to make a, a a barrel of Riesling, and I really hadn't thought about packaging it. You know, like I said before, I'd thought about maybe how to sell it, but you know, I just, I'm sitting here with this product and needs bottling and it's like, well, you need to put a label on it. <laughs> I was actually in Argentina when the label proofs were coming in and they were getting like faxed to Argentina. It was very strange. Um, but, because um, we didn't have good internet there. Um, so I was just driving around for weeks and months on end with a little notepad next to me, like trying to come up with a name. I, I decided I didn't want to name it, much to my parents, um, sorry, I lost the word. Chagrin. Yeah, much to my parents' chagrin, I didn't want to call it Burson Cellars or something like that because what if the wine sucked? <laughs> then my name's on it, right? So I, I approached it that I was gonna assume that the wine was my second label. Right, it's remained my second label now since 2007, so for 11, uh, 11 years. But that that sort of took the weight off uh, in terms of, of like my success that had to be very successful. Um, and I was just driving around trying to come up with a name for it, and um, had a little notebook, and I was like writing things like cloud, you know, crow, you know, telephone pole, like whatever, haystack. You know, just and I like every week I'd come home and sit at my dining room table with it and go like that's stupid, that's stupid, that's stupid, um, and then I was at actually at the Goodwill, 
in their book section in a, a spine of a book caught my eye um, because it was a, attractive um, and I pulled it out and it was uh, J.D. Salinger's Nine Short Stories which I'd read many many years before um, it was a really nice edition of it, it has this, sort of this argyle pattern on it um, and the lead story on that uh, is a story called For Esme with Love and Squalor which is a story I'd read before and really enjoyed and I saw that phrase I was like that's it it just, it just resonated um, and I, I went back and I um, told a few people and they're like, oh, that's interesting, you know? And then I, I, I talked to my parents like a few weeks later and I said, I came up with a name for the wine and I said, it's gonna be called Love and Squalor. And my dad said, well, who are you gonna try to sell that wine to? <laughs> I said, I guess not you, I mean, God. And he's actually one of my biggest supporters. But, um, but so it took a while to sink in, but it really resonated with me, and I think it, it was, it's evocative, it's like not specific, mm -hmm. right? So you can read into it. Um, but more than that, it, it really captured, um, for me, what winemaking had been for me so far. I mean, I was working, scurrying around as a seller rat. I wasn't making any money, I was freelance, right? Uh, you know, and I was traveling around the world, sure, but pretty much on the cheap. Um, and, you know, I was spending a season in the muddy soils of Oregon farming, um, farming grapes. And so there was definitely a lot of squalor to it, but it's a labor of love, right? And also, I mean, winemaking in general, it's an agricultural product out of these rainy days and cold, cold nights and beautiful days as well. But out of this dirt, it's just dirt, comes this come to these grapes and we turn it into this product that people have written poems about, right? I can't think of any other food product that people are writing poems and singing songs about. Maybe pizza, but um, <laughs> they should. Um, it's so great. Um, so that really, that really um, uh, re it resonated for me. Um, and also it has a little bit of humor to it. You know, which I think, as you probably can see, I, I like to laugh and laugh at myself as well as others. Um, uh, so that's how that was born. Um, the label came out of um, some some deeper sort of some deeper sort of research, um, which was I started digging through like old photographs I had. Remember photographs when you actually have photo albums? Well, I had some of, of the travels I had made and stuff like that. And I, I noted that in a lot of those photo albums, there, were, there was laundry hanging out, which is something you don't really see in the United States. But in Asia and in Europe, you may, you may do so. And sometimes I was even taking pictures of the laundry hanging. Like, oh, that's the whole soccer team's laundry. Like, that's cool. And I started thinking about like why I would take pictures of laundry hanging, and I realized it's just something about the simplicity of the humanity and the simplicity of like you need to wash your clothes and the sun is shining, so you hang them out to dry. You don't need a, a fancy machine or electricity in your or even a house, you know, to, to put the machine in to um, to have a clean set of clothes. And I think that that. Um, also spoke to my approach to winemaking. It's like wine's been making itself for a couple thousand years. I mean, fruit rots and ferments, right? Um, 
And so keeping it simple and trying to find, you know, trying to keep your hands off as much as possible and letting nature speak more fully through the grapes and through the fermentation process was sort of reflected in that. I mean, nobody reads that into the label when I show it to them. I mean, people are like, oh, you know, love and swallow, huh, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then they look at it like, oh, what's that about, three sisters? And I'm like, Whatever, wherever you want to go, man, you know. <laughs> but a lot of people look at it and they think that they've, they think they've seen it before. Mm -hmm. Like it's familiar to them. Mm -hmm. um, but all that, you, you don't know, you're sitting alone in your house, you know, inventing this wine label out of nothing, um, you know, naming it and designing it, um, and then you release it on humanity and you have no idea how it's going to be received, but it, it was received well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it should be said that the, um, the label has been designed by my wife, Angie Reed, um, who's, uh, who used to be a graphic designer before she was a co-owner of the Portland Wine Company. Um, and the illustration is by uh, Claire Carver, who has Big Table Farm. Mm -hmm. So I'd met her and Brian down in, in California, and when they moved up, I convinced her to do my, uh, to do my original label. That's yeah. awesome. So I was working with friends to get it, you know, um, and getting a nice deal on it, too. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about how your business grew from making a couple of cases of wine to where you are now and, and where you were, where you're getting your grapes and, and what, how you made decisions along the way to, like, what kind of wine you wanted to make. Right. So, um... I guess, I guess the production and growth um, happened, sort of progressed naturally, uh, maybe a little haphazardly, but uh, I mean, obviously, you know, Pinot, uh, Pinot is the king and queen and, and prince and princess of, of Oregon winemaking, and I, um, and I love it. So I always knew, of course, that I'd have to make my own Pinot Noir, at least one of them. Um, and, um, you know, the Pinot Noir you make, that's your calling card in Oregon. I mean, that's, that's your flagpole. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the kind of Pinot Noir I make. Um, so I worked really hard at that, at trying to um, find my niche in that. Um, I guess I'm not really answering your question, but that's I'm okay. going to go down it anyway. <laughs> that's fine. Um, so with the Pinot Noir, you know, people talk about new world or old world, and I discovered pretty early on, actually I discovered with my first batch of Riesling, I tasted my first batch of Riesling in, from 2006. It was fine, but it didn't taste at all like the Rieslings I'd helped make in the Mosul in Germany, and I was very disappointed. I was really down about it, which you might think, well, that's stupid. Right, and it is very simple. You can't make Mosul-style Riesling. You can't make Mosul Riesling in Oregon. You can't make Mosul in, in, out of Dundee fruit or Shehalem fruit, right? Because it's the land speaking, it's the climate speaking, it's the terroir, it's everything else. So that, although I felt kind of dumb about it, it was really an aha moment for me. I'm like, okay, you gotta rethink this. Because you, you can look towards other things for, guide, for guidance and for models and for ideals, mm -hmm. right, of where you hope to reach or what you like to drink when you've got a little cash in your pocket. 
but the wines you're making, I believe, really need to express where they're from. So I had to come. I had to walk down that path myself uh, and go through that depression to come out the other side and see the light. Um, so I decided early on that um, I'm making Oregon Pinot Noir, um, and you know, so to me that meant that there was going to be an inherent uh, fruit profile to it, not jammy, not like overripe, not like maybe some of the California Pinot Noirs we were having like on the Carneros and hotter, hotter regions. But that, you know, if you walk around Oregon in the summer, you go to Savi Island or you go out to you pick places out in the valley, you smell those strawberries ripening on the ground. You see the, you know, the, the Italian plums starting to come ripening at the end of the season. And those smells and those flavors, that's inherently Oregon. And so I wanted as much as possible for my fruit to have that, to capture that ripening, capture that season and this, the smells of summer and the harvest. And then after that, it was about the body and, and the finish, you know, and I wanted to keep the body uh, uh, lithe and graceful, have it dance as opposed to coat your tongue, have it dance on your tongue. Um, and then to me, I've always really liked acidic things. Um, and so I needed, I wanted to maintain that the acid on the finish, which um, leaves your mouth excited and wanting more, you know, your salivary glands are open um, and also pairs great with you. Then you put a piece of cheese in there and it sort of quiets down the acid and then you have this sort of resolution, you know, on a major chord kind of thing. Um, so that's what I was going for. I mean, I, in retrospect, looking back, I mean, at the time I didn't have that language to even talk about it with. But it's how my wine became. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess at some point it ended up being the Love and Swaller style. Um, it took someone else to say, oh, this tastes like one of your wines, Matt. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I have a style. Because um, I was just trying not to fuck it up. Um, most of the time. All of the time. Um, so, and then, uh, I always knew that in terms of white wine, which I've always been very interested in, and I wish, I wish white wine could be of equal value in our wine drinking world to reds. I mean, as it is, you can charge a lot more for reds, you can sell a lot more of it, right? But to me, white wines are much more dynamic, diverse, um, flexible in terms of when you, when you can drink them alone or with many different kinds of food. Um, excuse me. Um, a lot of people are starting to develop allergies or digestive issues around red wine as well. Um, I'm not, thank goodness. I know other winemakers who have, and it's an issue. But anyway, I knew that um, I wanted to focus on Riesling because of those Rieslings I'd had. Um, and so I was really chasing that grail. Mm -hmm. um, you know, plus, so I mean, I'd worked for Jimmy and Tad. I'd been chasing Jay Summers and watching his career. He had stopped making Riesling about two years after I released my first one which was sad because he'd gotten a lot of recognition for his Riesling, but it was also great because there was space on the shelf for my Riesling. I was like, thanks, Jay. He's like, sure. <laughs> um, he's making Riesling again, by the way. Um, but that was, a, you know, that's been a challenging path. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of people give lip service to how much they love Riesling, but it doesn't sell as much as Pinot Gris and it doesn't sell for as much as Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to chase that because I'd had, I'd had great Rieslings at Oregon soils. 
um, and had great experience making Riesling um, in Germany. Mm-hmm. So I, I just developed those and started mostly in terms of vineyards. Um, I'd already been purchasing fruit from Momtazi. I was working in the same facility as Tad was Die Crisp, who was making his label Lumos, and he had been the vineyard manager for Croft back in the day and then had taken over Temperance Hill. Um, and was doing a great job farming it, um, getting certifications and, and making sure that it was a, a people and wine friendly uh, farming techniques. Um, so I'd helped a little bit with making his wine because he was in the same facility and so he kicked me down um, a little bit of fruit that he had earmarked for his own label as a thank you and I've been working with that ever since. Um, and then I just would start searching around and asking asking my winemaker friends what they liked and if they knew of any fruit available. Um, and just drive around, you know, pulling over at vineyards. Um, that's how I discovered Sunnyside Vineyard, which is my top Riesling site. It's down on the I-5 corridor across from Willamette Valley Vineyards. Um, Sunnyside's great, and I'd heard about it. I'd heard they had a little Riesling in there from my friend Jean-Marc. And I decided to check it out. I couldn't find a phone number for them. Or I think I was going to be planning on driving down there anyway. And so I went with my assistant, um, Julia, and we stopped at the vineyard. And there was a little mailbox and said Sunnyside. And we drove in there, got out of the car and started poking around. This woman came running out of the house. She's like, who are you? What are you doing here? And she was well within her rights. I was trespassing on her property, and I, that was her house right there. She lived on the vineyard. And it turned out it was Lucy who, along with her husband Tom, own the site and farm it and do a great job of it. But it took a while to talk her down, you know, from, I mean, if she'd had a shotgun, she would have <laughs> shot me. Um, but as soon, when she realized, when I was able to say, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to trespass on your land, but I've heard great things about your fruit, I'm a winemaker. She says, oh, okay. You've been spending too much time in the cellar. You need to call people before you come onto their property. I'm like, fair enough. Um, so, but any, I've been working with them ever since, and I get Riesling, uh, my Gewürztraminer for my pink uh, Gewürztraminers from there, and I also now um, get Pinot Noir from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that, I mean, not all are so dramatic as getting, trying to get chased off the land um, when you're poking around a vineyard, but yeah. Some other sites like Sunny, um, Sunny Mountain, which is easy to confuse with Sunnyside, Sunny Mountain, which is down uh, south um, near Benton Lane, I'd work with that fruit at Brooks. There was none available at the time, but a couple years later, I'd heard that Steve Price, who owns that site, had a few tons available, and so I called him up. Mm-hmm. So things like that, and that's how I that's how I work with it. So every year, um, I use there's sort of a core of vineyards that I source from, but I always keep a little space open, like if there's some, if I hear something towards the end of harvest, or if there's any deals, or if something I've been lusting after suddenly there's some available, then I'll I'll have room for that, and I can and um, I can bring that into the cellar. Sure. So then, um, so the main wines are blends, the Riesling and the Pinot. And the, I mean, so the blend does change a little bit because you know, although the core is the same, over the, over the years it kind of shifts depending on who I'm working with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I like that and I like, 
it's, to me, it's like having different ingredients in the kitchen, right? So you can bring it all together, add a little bit of that, and add a bit of that, and a sprinkle of that, and then you've got your perfectly composed uh, dish. I mean, it should be said, maybe as an aside, that um, more and more vineyards are um, sort of ta being taken off the market, mm -hmm. right? So this happens for a variety of reasons. I mean, some of the vineyard owners are getting older, um, so they're either selling or, in the case of a few, they're deciding to lease out the whole vineyard, which they prefer to do to one producer. Um, and I don't really have the resources to lease a vineyard, or at least I haven't figured out how. Um, so that's happened a few times, and then a lot of vineyards have sold, mm -hmm. you know, to some to people from out of town, um, some to people who are already established here who are expanding. Mm -hmm. um, so that also means that I have to find um, different sources to replace that fruit. Um, and also I'm a growing concern, you know, I mean, you know, last year I brought in 40 tons of fruit, next year I hope to bring in 45, 50, maybe 60. I mean, you know, I, I, I need to keep growing to meet up with the demand for Oregon wines. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about, about that growth, uh, not just yeah. for you, but for the industry in, in large. Uh, you talked about being good at selling wine and that being one of your, kind of your strengths coming into the business. Uh, how do you sell your wine? How do you market your wine with all of the competitors on the shelves? Well, yeah. So I, I think that Love and Squalor came on the market at a good time. There was still a hunger for new under-the-radar uh, labels or, or new projects um, out there in, in Portland at least and, and uh, throughout the state and then maybe to some other markets including Washington and maybe California to a little bit of a lesser degree. Um, so I and I got pretty good coverage within maybe the first three to five years. I would often have people say, Matt, I see your wine everywhere. And that's a great thing, mm -hmm. right? And it was just me and my VW Golf going around pouring wine for people and then delivering it. Um, and it was a great way to go. And then pretty soon I brought on somebody who'd helped do deliveries, um, but I was still selling it all myself. Um, but as the winery grew and I needed to be in the cellar more, um, and also the Portland market grew, then I brought in um, some salespeople who were working directly for me. Actually, they were working for, we sort of syndicated, so I brought, it was me and a couple other small producers, mm -hmm. and we contracted on with some other salespeople, some independent salespeople. And so they'd carry all our wines in their bag, you know, three, four days a week, and then we'd do our deliveries through Oregon Wine Country. Mm -hmm. And that worked pretty well, but basically, um, we didn't have the time or the means to manage that sales team and give them the support they needed. Um, so now I'm working with a distributor locally. Um, so, so, but I've always felt, I mean, everyone's like, oh, it's getting so competitive, it's getting so competitive. Um, and, I felt perhaps stupidly that it didn't apply to me mm -hmm. because I was just working, mostly working the local market and working relationships that I'd built. So I wasn't looking at how Oregon wine was playing nationwide. Sure. You know, like how many Oregon Pinot Noir SKUs there were in New York City, all of them. 
um, or something like that. Like I, I had a very small regional picture, and it was satisfying what I needed to do in terms of wh how much wine I needed to sell to support me and my family. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's changed a bit. Well, for sure, that's changed a bit. Um, I still feel like I'm a little dumb in terms of uh, uh, happily dumb, ignorant, I guess, of the, of the big national picture. I'm just, just trying to sell my wine and, and partner up with um, restaurants, consumers, and distributors who I can get along with and, and build a relationship with over the long term where we believe, where we, we all like the product, we can develop new products together if we need to, mm -hmm. we can find the people out there in the world who get it and want it, right? Because it's a pretty specific thing, right? I'm not making mass market, um, you know, bottom shelf Pinot Noir, right? And there's a place for that, mm -hmm. and there's people who are very good at it, but that takes a totally different kind of work than I have. Mm -hmm. For me, it's someone who wants to work with a boutique winery who can sell a certain amount, but it's, there's not huge demands. I don't have a national salesperson. I don't make it to all my markets even, twice, even once every two years. Mm -hmm much to the chagrin of my distributors, but I just can't. I've got a family, I've got a winery, pouring Riesling and Pinot Noir for people. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't help anybody. Uh, that being said, Texas is a great market. You know, it's a big place and it's food, it's food forward, especially in Houston. Um, so I've, I've partnered up with a great distributor there who, who gets it mm -hmm. and who can sell my wine at the price that they are. Um, Locally, I mean, it's pretty hard for you know people like Jess who just walked by. Like, it's, it's harder and harder, you know, because the shelf space is crowded, and and a lot of people don't want to see another winemaker at their door. They're like, I'm full up. You know, I've got the winemakers I've worked with for the last five years. I'm just going to stick with them until until now, until ever. You know, um, and then you know, in in terms of. Uh, in terms of Riesling and more seasonal products, you know, like, like Rosé or um, I make Sauvignon Blanc as well, for that it's more of a point of, of difference. And, and so there's, there's, a, there's usually a space for that, you know, because it's something, it's something that sort of tickles the, the tongue and the brain, like, oh, that's something different, Oregon Sauvignon Blanc. We'll give that a go. Sure. Um, so that's sort of the joy of the, of the new for most people. So you talked about uh, growing production uh, yeah. and uh, you have a hopes to move into a larger space or change the way you're doing things uh, in the near future? Yeah, so I mean actually right now it's a, it's a pretty exciting time for me. Um, so I've been making wine in sort of shared space in the valley um, for a long time um, which is great fun uh, it has its challenges, but I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good roommate, I think. Don't ask them. Um, but for me, for one thing, I live in Portland, um, and you know, and I've been commuting to the Valley, which is a hardship, especially with a, a young kid at home and um, and all that. So this year, I made wine in a shared space in Portland, but we've been looking. My we being my wife Angie and I have been looking for a space in Portland for three years. Um, well, had been looking for three years before we found one. And so we're, the name of my LLC that, uh, that I operate under has been Portland Wine Company since 2007. 
and it's a great name. It was more of an aspirational name. <laughs> also, when I found it, I was like, no one has that? Like, come on, like, that's a no-brainer. Um, but it has said on the back of the label, the Portland Wine Company, McMinnville, Oregon, which is a little confusing. So at long last, it's gonna say Portland Wine Company, Portland, Oregon, and we're, we're building out an old warehouse in Southeast, and it will be um, production space plus a public-facing storefront with a tasting room. And I've never had um, a, a place to do direct-to-consumer sales. Sure. Um, it's exciting. So it's sort of been a two-legged stool for a long time, and now I can actually, hopefully, sit comfortably on a stool without falling over, <laughs> and and hopefully we can push, the business can be more successful because of that. I mean, really, it's about the revenue streams, and I've been it's been okay, mm -hmm. right? I mean, my my family all has shoes on their feet, um, and we eat and drink pretty well, but um, to be able to have that and sort of build the wine club and build recognition of the label and do events and all sorts of things like that. Um, we're really looking forward to that. And also having my wife in the company, it also will be something that she can build mm -hmm. and really sink her teeth in because she's not a winemaker. And she's trying to help run this, uh, run this business. Um, so once in there, I mean, I'm, I'm at about 3,000 cases annually now. It's fluctuated a little bit uh, depending on the market and um, grapes. Um, but we'll, we're definitely going to build it up slowly. I've heard from quite a lot of people that if you bite off too much too early that it can really bite you back. Um, and I don't want to um, get ahead, I don't want to get ahead of the, of the cart. Mm -hmm. um, or get ahead of the horse, I guess. Put my cart ahead of the horse. So in any case, um, we'll grow, um, hopefully, uh, slowly. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we can probably do 6,000 cases out of that facility. Um, and we'll get, there, we'll get there relatively soon. Um, and then we'll have to find another building and build another facility. <laughs> but it's really exciting. I mean, the, it's, it's challenging. It's a little bit challenging to make wine in Portland. It's actually, so far, it's less challenging than I expected. Um, I thought it would be hard to get grapes up here. Um, but there's some people who can deliver up here. Most of the vineyards have been fine with it, and there's people who will bring the grapes up for a price. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of just the cost of doing business. Um, it's more expensive to like use water and keep the heat on and things like that in Portland. Um, but those are, those are the costs of, of lifestyle choices. So my lifestyle is going to be better. I have an eight-minute drive to the winery, you know, 15-minute bike ride or something like that. Mm -hmm. Plus, I'll have my public-facing uh, tasting room, um, and also I can bring some of my best customers, like the restaurants and stuff, can come to see me. They can come help out at Harvest. They can come hang out in the tasting room. Um, so I think in terms of building that strength um, as being a homeboy winery, um, I think it'll 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 pay for it itself in economic terms, but also in terms of just lifestyle mm -hmm. um, and lifestyle terms. And there's a growing, I'm, I'm new to it, but there's a growing urban, urban wine scene, you know, which is getting a lot of recognition nationally. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it's a fun crew. There's some real nut jobs making wine up here, and it's really fun to put your heads together and, and think of some great things to do and ways to promote it and wines True. to make. Um, and sort of 
being outside of the box that a, a winery is a beautiful estate on a vineyard you know I mean I'd love that don't get me wrong if you've got a vineyard to sell me you know or to give me um, I'm open to it but it wasn't um, it wasn't readily apparent that I was going to be able to do that but I needed to grow the business somehow mm -hmm. so it's either get a vineyard and build a winery on it and be there mm -hmm. or um, or figure out a way to get a tasting room in a place where people want to come in and join your wine club and, and sure. buy glasses of your wine so we decided to go for that you said you looked for a while. What, what was it about this space particular that, that made this the spot you wanted to, to build? Honestly, the space is, is, is a compromised space. Um, the, the commercial market, the commercial space market in Portland is crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, the building boom here. Should I wait for... Uh, all good. You're fine. Um, the commercial um, market here is, is crazy, you know I mean? There's a lot of people sitting on old concrete warehouses that mm -hmm. used to go for less than 50 cents a square foot, and they think they're sitting on a multi-million dollar building because someone can come in and tear it down and put up uh, a tower of some sort, sure. you know? Um, so when we were looking to lease, and it wasn't until we found some, some people who were willing to help us buy a building that we were able to find something because... Cause if you're leasing a building, you're, you have to put all this money into improving the building, and a lot of the improvements you make for a winery, like the climate control, like trench drains, things like that, are very specific mm -hmm. to our field, maybe to beer making too. Um, and you're not, that's out of pocket. And when you leave that building, they own it, mm -hmm. right? You can't take those trench drains with you. Right. Um, so we realized that it's made a lot more sense to try to find something uh, to buy, and that way we're investing in the building and we have the equity um, and but it's a little bit shorter of a building in terms of uh, ceiling height than I wanted um, but we're building an external building for the press so I can dump up over it um, and it's a little bit smaller so I was hoping to put all of the operations into one thing including case storage mm. well there's plenty of places to store case goods just like this one um, and at a cheaper price than than building a, a storage space in the middle of southeast Portland, you know, which is sort of prime real estate. True. Um, so yeah, it's all, that's, a whole new, that's a whole new adventure. Um, we'll bring in a couple other small wineries to, to share with us, at least at the beginning. When, um, do, when do you hope to have it open? Uh, we're, hope, we're, we're told we can have occupancy by June. Oh, nice. So by the height of summer. Awesome. Yeah. So let's back up a little bit. We're going to broaden out a little bit and take a look at the industry in general. I'm, I'm curious um, what it means to you to see, uh, to have, say, Oregon on a wine label. What, is, what does Oregon on a wine label uh, mean to you? Well, huh, interesting question. I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying about the kind of wine I decided to make. Mm -hmm. The, you know, when you come to that realization, or when anyone comes to the realization that that wine, maybe more than any other product, maybe not, um, but wine among other products, is so expressive, reflective, is a is a a, a, a vortex into a place, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, sure, we talk about all the, AV the AVA and all the sub-AVAs, but Oregon, to even a lot of people, they have no idea. 
when if you travel in Europe and you say you're from Oregon, they're like, um, they don't know it. Oh, it's north of San Francisco, it's south of, of Seattle. Oh yeah, I got that, right? So we got to start with that sort of macro mm -hmm. view. And you know, Oregon's pretty unique. There's a unique set of, of values here, of environmental values um, and lifestyle values um, that I think is also comes along with that. Um, and and I, I mean, I honestly think it's the best place in the States, at least, to grow Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. to really express it um, in a way that I think shows the best colors of that of the Pinot Noir varietal. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the Riesling from here is super unique um, and definitely better than Washington or California. Um, and then, you know, the Chardonnay and then other varietals down the road. I mean, it's really because of our unique weather mm -hmm. um, and because of the, the things that we as a culture, an Oregon culture, think about, you know, like protecting our vineyard workers, protecting the wildlife around the vineyard, the salmon, and things we think about in the cellar in terms of w w what we're going to put into mm -hmm. the wine, if there's any amendments or anything like that. I think that all those... Um, I know that all of those considerations make a very unique thing that is that is unique to Oregon. Um, also, the, the the image of the sort of hard scrabble flannel wearing. Sorry, I don't have a beard. Um, I have had a beard. Um, uh, small bootstrapping kind of thing in Oregon is also true. You know, I mean, the statistics, the wine statistics prove it, mm -hmm. you know, show it out that, you know, the, there's whatever 700 and whatever wineries and the majority of them are under 10,000 cases, right? I mean, in Wine Business Monthly, a small winery is, I think, up to 100,000 cases, right? That's their category. I mean, I know three producers making 100,000 cases. They're super great, nice people. Right? But that's a diff totally different game than my 3,000 cases or Jess's 300 cases. Mm -hmm. You know? So there's really that, the personality of everything we do is, is right there. Mm -hmm. What do you see happening in the future of the organizer? You're, you're getting in, you're, you're, you're digging in now, you're buying in and you're building. What do you see when you look 10 years down the road? <sighs> well, Ten years down the road, um, I see selling my winery to Kendall Jackson and retiring to Spain. <laughs> <laughs> but really, um, I don't believe that's going to happen. Um, but I mean, but obviously, I mean that's sort of a loaded question, or not a loaded question. It's a very good question, but it's sort of fraught with a lot of. Uh, pitfalls and traps, right? Because it's a, it's a um, and as is the future of Oregon wine, I think. I mean, there's been a lot of things in the news lately in, you know, about our wine and about sort of protecting the identity of it or what makes Oregon or Willamette Valley really that, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's the, whether it's the percentage of the varietal that's in it um, or the name that you can put on it or um, you know, there's talk of mandating ingredients lists on it. Um, you know, I think those all serve to 
keep us at least feeling unique. I don't know how it expresses in the greater um, wine market. Um, but obviously with the attention we're getting, you know, with people acknowledging that there's great world-class wines coming out of Oregon, people are going to want a piece of it, mm -hmm. you know? And um, I mean, it's part of the reason I'm digging in, like you put it, I'm digging in, I'm going to have a, a there there, mm -hmm. and I'm going to have a place to sell my wine and maybe sell other people's wines um, outside of the big, the big bad marketplace. You know where people where people are coming into Oregon and making a lot of Oregon wine and know how to sell it on a national scale. I don't know how to do that, but I know how to sell to an individual. I know how to sell to small restaurants and small groceries. Um, there definitely is. I mean, there's a few. There's a few things. I mean, there definitely is an issue of losing vineyard, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's more planting going in. Because of climate change, we're able to plant places we weren't able to plant before. But it takes a lot of capital to do that, and there's not a lot of capital locally, or there's less capital locally than there might be um, nationally, like in California um, or anywhere else. Um, uh, so that's one thing. There's also, with climate change, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more climate refugees, you know, and, and I think we already are. We're seeing, we're seeing a lot of refugees from California because it's becoming so hard to live there. That's not necessarily because of the wildfires and the heat, it's also because of it's so crowded and expensive, but it all plays together. And I mean, I love it when people move to Portland because that's more people for me to sell my wine to, right? But there's also a, a downside to it in that there's more people looking at buying up vineyard land, whether they're going to put vineyards there or not. Mm -hmm. You know, there's more people who are going to want to retire and start a winery. Um, so it just, it is going to impact that. And I think we're only starting to see that. Right now what we're seeing mostly is larger already existing uh, California wineries expanding in Oregon, right? But I think you'll also see I don't know, in the past, in the next 10 or 20 years, maybe you'll see smaller California producers who can't make the kind of wine they want to make anymore in California, and they're going to be looking up here. Um, uh, and we want to be able to welcome them, but it also just makes for a more crowded playing field. Sure. Um, but I'll be retired in Spain. That's right. Well, somebody, else, somebody else's problem <laughs> somebody at that else's point. Somebody else's problem. It's my child's problem. She can deal with it. Um, the future is our children. Right. We'll leave all that crap to them. Uh, what advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today? Don't do it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, I mean, one thing that's, I've tried to play forward or pay forward um, the, the amazing chance I was given, you know, I just sort of started hanging out with some winemakers and they, I didn't smell too bad and they let me hang around, you know, I brought a six pack of cold beer with me and let me hang around and do it. Um, so, and in, in terms of the way I learned, you know, um, just at the elbows of all these great winemakers without having to pay for an education, um, I mean, I think you should get an education if you can, you know, in winemaking. Um, 
but it's amazing. I, don't, I, I know that if I'd stayed in California, where I was working in restaurants, I would never have become a winemaker. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think the opportunity would have presented itself. I could have gone and worked in a tasting room and worked in a restaurant in Napa or Dry Creek and known a lot of winemakers and imbibed in a lot of really good wine. But the opportunity wouldn't have presented itself like, here's a ton of fruit, here's a couple barrels, go for it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I definitely uh, try to keep that uh, playing forward. I, it, might, it might be harder now, because there's a little more at stake, there's more competition, there's more money mm -hmm. in the game, but that doesn't affect me. I mean, it affects me, but it doesn't affect my attitude. You know, I'm friends with quite a few winemakers who are just starting out. I'm like, go for it. You know, you can bump me off the shelf, I'm gonna bump you right back off the shelf. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna take my shelf space back. You know. Friendly competition. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it keeps everything exciting, it keeps it going. You know. So the questions I have for you, uh, is there anything I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to say here at the end that we didn't cover? Huh. Open forum, open mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't really, I mean, a lot of times before something like this, I'd sit down and write some stuff down, but, um, but I, I didn't really, I think, I think it's, I think it's pretty good. I think okay. we covered a lot of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for thank your you. time and for your hospitality here in the, in the, in the Portland Wine uh, Company. And, uh, we'll go ahead and stop dating. Thank okay. you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.